0: Welcome back to Global Girl Media UK's podcast. This episode, we have the privilege of chatting to one of my and Holly's favourite journalists, Bethan McKernan. Bethan is a Middle East and Turkey correspondent who has reported on incredible stories for The Guardian, one of the UK's biggest national papers. Since International Women's Day falls in March, we wanted to commemorate this day by speaking to Bethan about her experiences as a woman, not only in journalism, but also as a woman reporting from war zones. But before diving into the complex issues, let's start from the beginning. How did you get into foreign correspondence?
1: Hi, thank you very much for having me and for very kind words there. How did I get into foreign correspondence? I guess I always wanted to do it, even before I really knew what the job really entails or what it meant. I always wanted to travel and I always wanted to write. And as you know, it can be quite difficult field to get into. So I had a desk job in my mid-twenties on the website of The Independent and there was a New Year's Eve. I basically promised myself that night, I thought, right, you know what, this is the year that I'm actually going to do it. I know it's going to be difficult and I might need to save up a lot of money and go freelance and that's quite, you know, unpredictable and can be quite unstable, but at least I've got to go try it and see what happens. So um, my boss says that I wanted to move to Lebanon because I've been learning Arabic for about two years at that point, And I wanted to actually start using it a bit. Um, so I told them I was going and they said, oh, all right, well, you know, you can report for, for us from there if you want. So I actually got lucky in that respect and I went with, you know, some work already lined up.
0: Well, that sounds incredible. That's the New Year's resolution that's worked in your favour then. What about your education journey as well? Did you always know that you wanted to go down the path of journalism? And if so, what do you think is important for our younger listeners to kind of be aware of when they're considering further education or like further experiences to broaden their journalistic experiences, of course, and specifically for foreign correspondents?
1: I think a lot of trying to break into journalism or uk journalism at the moment is um it's really difficult and a lot of it is who you know and you know whether you have uh you know a family who who work in the industry and friends who work in the industry who just just to give you a kind of even baseline understanding of of how it works those are the kind of things that you can't really control for if you if you want to break into into a media job and i didn't really have any of those things I guess, you know, if you're still sort of like at the later years of school or you're at uni or something and this is what you want to do, I would 100% say if you know any other languages or you're interested in learning foreign languages, that's 100% the most useful advice I could say to anybody who wants to get into journalism because, right, you can report on stuff that other journalists and a newsroom can't necessarily. So that would be my first piece of advice. And my second would be, is just to know that you have to really be able to take knocks and to and to get up and keep going again and again and again if you want to succeed in it it is really tough and things like unpaid internships are cruel and they don't really work for you know normal normal people but if you do have a break in the school holidays or uni just to go down to your local paper even just for a couple of days and ask them you know how do you do what you do? How do you put stories together? How do you find them? You know, it it helps you understand how this stuff actually works. So you don't need to do, you know, three months in a newsroom, fetching coffee or whatever. (laughs) That's not that's not useful. You'd be learning way more and doing much more hands on stuff if you kind of start really local where people actually have the time to show you what they're doing, and and you know you know the area, and you know you know what the stories are. So
0: you probably find that you'll learn a lot more there than somewhere else. That's great advice, very, very valuable as well. And you've also answered my other question, which was, do you think it's important to know the language of the country that you're porting from?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been learning Turkish for two years now. Dila, uh, Türkçe billion misiniz? Türkçe billion million. A- evet. Ben Türküm. like a like a welsh turkish accent yeah this is why everybody thinks i'm really funny um so yeah i mean i i set out to report or to i was interested in the arab world i went to damascus when i was 19 i had this syrian friend that i worked with and this is before the arab spring And I had, you know, I'd saved up a bit of money and I wanted to travel before I started university and I didn't have any idea where to go or what to do. And she said, well, why don't you go to Syria? You know, it's really great. And there are cheap flights. This is back when I think BMI Baby or one of those carriers still existed. Wow. I feel old talking to you guys. (laughs) So, uh. So, yeah, I did. I uh, I went for a couple of weeks to Syria, to Lebanon, to Jordan and to Egypt. And I had a fantastic, fantastic time. And I didn't really know anything about the Middle East or the region before that. But it kind of got me hooked. Um, and that that's always been kind of there for me. So, yeah, I decided to take uh, Arabic seriously while I was living in London Um, don't get me wrong I'm still not very good because it's a lifelong process and Arabic is very very difficult but that was the intention so when I moved to Turkey for the job I got with the Guardian um, that was a whole new um, set of you know challenges so I'm still trying very hard in Turkish but it's very rewarding to to actually start understanding things and to be able to have conversations with people and pick up the slang and pick up cultural references and stuff so yeah I mean I would say it's super important to to know the language of the country that you're living in or covering but I also have to caveat that with you know I'm still learning.
2: You speak a little bit then about being a woman and in a patriarchal environment how do residents and politicians treat you as a woman and as a journalist in? Those kind of areas?
1: I mean, I think it's kind of a double-edged sword because in some ways when you're a woman, if you're if you're in an actual active conflict zone, like if you're in parts of Syria or Iraq or Yemen or somewhere like that, sometimes I find that the men that you're dealing with who are in official roles or military roles. They can underestimate you and they treat you like you're stupid and if that means that they tell you information that they would never have bothered to tell a man because they're not trying to impress them or they don't think that you're going to do anything with it then that can work to your advantage. You can get closer to people and stories than men can a lot of the time and you can actually you know shed light on stuff that doesn't go into sometimes the reports that men put out i mean there was an example of this on my last trip to yemen which was in november there's a there's a migrant trail that comes up through the horn of africa ethiopians and somalis who cross into yemen trying to get to saudi arabia and it's really undercovered because you know access is so difficult and it's it's because these people aren't going to europe they don't really create the same kind of interest or headlines that that you know, the refugee trail to to Italy or Greece did. But yeah, you know, and I I, I was talking to some of the young women and the girls who are making this journey, who the men, you know, a male journalist couldn't talk to or wouldn't be able to talk to. And their experiences are very specific and very different, right? I mean, I ended up writing in my report how palpable, you know, the threat of sexual harassment and assault and rape is for, for these girls. And I noticed in, a, in reports that you know men have put out about the same subject that's just not mentioned in it at all. When to me that's one of the most important parts of that story, you know, that's that's a whole 50% of the people doing this journey you're kind of not communicating their experiences and some of the worst things that are happening. I think in that sense we do bring a perspective and we we do kind of make sure that some perspectives are are told that maybe would get missed out otherwise.
0: Do you find yourself with like a certain affinity towards women and girls alike in like war zones or places like Yemen? Do you find that you prefer to speak to them and tell their stories? Yes, definitely.
1: Yemen is one of my favourite places to work, which I know sounds really strange, but because there is basically so little reporting that comes out of the country and because you know Yemeni journalists themselves are often hamstrung in what they can report because they have to keep themselves safe and getting in is is really difficult so if you are lucky enough to get the access and to actually talk to people i think yeah i think it's really important to convey what you know particularly uh, Yemeni women have to say because you just you don't get those voices even even in um, the most recent round i mean there is a there is a peace talk process for yemen And there is, you know, this sort of subcommittee dedicated to women's rights and women's issues. But even their male colleagues don't necessarily pay attention to them or or give those issues the kind of real attention that they deserve. So, yeah, I think I think definitely it's really important to elevate those voices if you can.
2: Yeah, I think that's really interesting what you said about how maybe being a woman helps you in a way get um, more information for your stories. So, I wanted to ask how do you go about getting those stories in the first place? Is it by speaking to people on the ground, or do you follow recent developments, or do you like choose your own stories, and how do you approach these?
1: When I'm looking for stories or covering for stories, I think there's usually a combination of factors that go into that. Sometimes, you know, the news happens and it's so big and huge that You know, it's obvious that you have to start covering it or looking for informational angles. I mean, to give an example, something like uh, when Qasem Soleimani was assassinated last year, you know, I sort of woke up to those news alerts and it was just it was just so massive that you had to start working immediately. So there was, sometimes it's really clear what the story is. Sometimes I start with a topic. No one's really written about environmental issues in Turkey or um, mining, you know, new mining contracts with foreign companies in Turkey. That's an interesting topic. But to get from a topic to an actual story takes quite a lot of work. You have to sort of do a lot a lot of reading on, on the topic and talk to a lot of people to figure out you know, what the actual story is, you know, if there's any information that you can uncover that is new, and that deserves to be in the public sphere. So um, yeah, that process can, can take a little while, but usually
0: it's pretty worth it. This leads to my next question, actually, since you mentioned Turkey as well, also in reference to Yemeni journalists, many people might not know, but Turkey has the second highest number of journalists which are imprisoned in the world. There are examples, like in 2015, one of the editors for the Jumhuriyet um, newspaper was imprisoned for 27 years. He was just publishing incriminating articles about the government and he was uh, labelled as a terrorist. So what I'm trying to say is this: there appears to be this silencing of journalists in Turkey and in the Yemen, especially when it comes to any subject matter that paints the government in a bad light. Does this make you reluctant to write objectively and for a UK national paper as well? Ah, That's a really good question. This bit's
1: off, off the record. Off on the record. Turkey has been a real learning curve. I think it's one of the most interesting places to be a journalist but as you say dealer it can be one of the most difficult and one of the most dangerous and you know and it's a place where you think oh Turkey you know Turkey's practically Europe or parts of Turkey are very European so it can't possibly be that uh, repressive or that difficult to do free and fair reporting but but actually yeah it, it really is and the and the trajectory isn't good either it gets more difficult all the time and this is something I didn't have when I lived in Lebanon in Lebanon as long as you're not writing about Hezbollah you can basically write whatever you want which is basically the consequences of Lebanon being a failed state which is also not a good thing but yeah just to illustrate how how different how different the situation is it is very difficult i've been living in turkey for 2 years and you need to to be able to work there you need to have a press card issued by the Turkish presidency. And I actually struggled to get one for a long time because the the Turkish authorities didn't really like me and they didn't really trust me. So I think it's definitely been a learning curve and a a balancing act, how you can write about the things that are going on in a state which doesn't necessarily like journalism, that doesn't toe the government line. You have to be very aware, basically, with every single story you publish. You have to think... You know, eight steps ahead. If I if I publish this, then what will happen? You know, what will that mean? Will it mean that I don't get access to this thing in the future? Will it mean that um, my Turkish sources will stop talking to me because they don't like it? Will it mean that I'll get kicked out of Turkey? So all those things are always, you know, at the back of your mind, and you have to keep them quite. You have to think, yeah, you do. You have to be careful, but at the same time, you have to write it like you like you see it and. If they and if they don't like it, then they'll kick me out. That's 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 how that's how it will go. So we will we will see. I mean, I'd really hope that that isn't the case, but um, I mean, this is the problem that everybody runs into if you're trying to do independent uh, work in the Turkish context: is you're going to piss them off basically, and they might have their reasons for that, and they might say, oh, "Okay, well, but this is our side of the story," and you know, Turkey always gets such a bad rep in the international media. And that's kind of true. But I think as long as, you know, you can show that you have thought carefully about all the different angles of the story and and you've still gone ahead and written it anyway, even if it's not favourable to the Turkish government, then I would hope that, that that would be enough to, you know, just to justify what you're doing that was a very convoluted answer sorry but it is a very difficult topic
0: (laughs) that's quite interesting I assume that if you were writing for a UK national paper they might have been a bit more lenient but I guess I mean they do care about how they present themselves especially to Europe so it makes sense I guess okay well since you've been living in Turkey for the last two years I want to ask you how uh, you've experienced like the division happening in Turkey in terms of like the liberal younger generation against the older generation who are kind of adopting Erdogan, which is the conservative leaders' backward policies. Uh, first of all, do you find that to be true? Do you experience this division firsthand through the last two years that you've been there? Turkey is a really, really fascinating
1: place. Mainly because of these kind of tensions, political tensions, and the polarisation that, that, yeah, you just that you just mentioned. Um, it's sort of there's no kind of middle ground. There's no kind of consensus building in the middle where everybody kind of tries to come together and see each other's points of view. Necessarily, it's just it's just you know extreme left extreme right extreme nationalism extreme anti nationalism you know whatever whatever the topic happens to be like everything kind of descends into culture wars at some point so yeah i i definitely have uh seen those divisions really really up close um to the point where actually in kind of conservative neighborhoods of istanbul sometimes people i mean i'm i'm obviously a foreigner right even though i can speak some turkish but sometimes people will shout at me or or be like go home or get out you know you're just spying for western countries when all i've done is like walk down the street with my headphones on so i'm not trying to attract attention or talk to anyone necessarily so it can be in some ways really hostile um Yeah, that's something I haven't experienced anywhere else except Turkey. It's interesting how there is this kind of the democratic structures and that kind of political plurality is, you know, that's part of modern Turkey. It's been there for a 100 years. And even though, you know, the current government is definitely very much in control and has been trying to, you know, consolidate control. Very much so in the last five years since the coup attempts, there are still these kind of currents of, of you know, resistance or, or opposition parties that will work together to try and win an election, a local election result, something like that. So, yeah, it's really dynamic and and it's always changing, which I think is really interesting. Right now, well, I guess last month there has been this this new wave of protests in Istanbul and also in Ankara. Over the government trying to, to appoint uh, a rector at one of the most prestigious universities in the country, it's called Boadiji University uh on the banks of the Bosphorus in in Istanbul and that has you know really exposed a lot of divisions that were probably also there before Erdogan and the and the current government too but it's been really interesting to see that there is this young turkey is a young country right it's um the population skews really really young and all i think there's going to be something like two million new voters by the time of the next election in 2023 know, so i think it's actually five million i think there's going to be five million new voters if they hold elections in 2023 as as is scheduled right now which is a huge new demographic of people And yeah, you know, all the evidence is basically pointing towards the fact that, you know, these these young people are, they accept, you know, Erdogan's government and the AKP, like his party, as um, the status quo. They don't remember what life in Turkey was like before Erdogan came along and really, you know, raised living standards for the working class. And, you know, he was a real... Proper manner, the people like a real populist, not like the populist we have in Boris Johnson. Erdogan is like the OG. He really did, you know, put Turkey on a path where it kind. He kind of dragged it into the future. I think when Erdogan became prime minister back in two thousand and two, two thousand three, uh, the average life expectancy for a Turkish person was the same as the average life expectancy for a Syrian. And now, the average life expectancy for a Turkish person is the same as for a Spaniard, so in twenty years, he's basically managed to like totally transform the country you know economically, politically socially, and for some people, for his base, that works out really well. But you know for this growing group of young people, they don't know anything different; they think that's the that's the project to rebel against so I'm really, you know, interested and excited to keep covering that in the next in the next few years. I think it's yeah, I think it's really
0: important. I mean, it does seem incredibly fascinating to oversee this adoption of the status quo, as you say, but also generates hope for the future of Turkey, or I hope it does anyway, because especially as someone who wants to live and study in Turkey, obviously witnessing these incredible protests and backlash from afar And even hearing from friends who have visited Turkey and have observed the militancy of the police and such, like seeing people getting arrested or beaten merely for filming a video during a protest, it's understandably unsettling and really does show the stark differences between us in the West and conservative Turkey, especially since some of us are under the impression that it's such a liberal and modernized place.
1: I mean, Turkey is a conservative place, as I'm sure you know. It is. It's a deeply conservative place, and I think a lot of Europeans and a lot of visitors who come on holiday, you know, they see Istanbul and how liberal it is, and the beautiful parts of the, of the Mediterranean coast and the Aegean coast, and they think, yeah, you know, Turkey is. Uh, it's so liberal and and, and so forward thinking, and it's so gay rights friendly. And Erdogan is uh you know he's just a bad guy repressing everybody, but yeah, the truth is it is definitely a lot more complex than that like yeah istanbul is a is a liberal metropolitan hub in some neighborhoods, but in other neighborhoods it's really deeply conservative, both you know politically and religiously um so you can have like a gay friendly nightclub in one neighborhood and then you can go five hundred meters and be you know basically amongst, you know, really socially conservative people who would never, you know, those those two things kind of go up against each other, which is what makes Istanbul such an amazing place, but also gives it all these tensions, right? I mean, I found moving to Turkey quite a shock. And I thought I was ready for it. And I and I knew what it was going to be like. But even then, the kind of the divides and the, the political kind of fervor with which people really believe in these different ideas, really kind of Shocked me. Everything is politicized, everything, absolutely everything. So, yeah, if you were, if you were, you know, going to move there, I would hope, or if you're going to explore it, I would hope within a university community, you know, you'd be kind of, to some extent, they'd be able to kind of introduce you to what it's like in a kind of quite controlled and safe way. But yeah, there's no denying it would be, it's a massive culture shock. And you have to be really careful with what you say and what you put on the internet. That's one thing that, you know, I'm I'm 31 now, and although the last year doesn't count because of the pandemic, so whatever. You know, my cousins are uh, 16 and 14, and, you know, they're very much, you know, Gen Z. And, you know, I just see how they post stories, and they're on TikTok, and they do all this stuff. And all I can think is, is like, wow, how lucky you are to live in a country like the UK where you don't have to worry about, you know, people seeing what you think and do on your social media. I mean, sure, you know, Facebook and China are probably taking all your data, but at least you know that's not gonna land you in jail. But if you are a young person in Turkey, you know you don't have that freedom. And I think that's a huge shock to, to people when they when they first arrive, when they travel, or if they come for a little while, is yeah, it's it's heavily militarized, basically, like you say. There's no um, you can't even hold a women international women's day protest anymore. The one last year got shut down by police with tear gas and riot gear. Oh, the government would say that's partly a security thing because they did have a string of really nasty um, terrorist attacks through under the, and the coup you know through 2014 through to 2018 you know it was it was really dangerous in a lot of turkish cities so it's part the militarization is partly a response to that but yeah it has this other effects which the government is clearly very aware of 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 making sure that people know they can't even gather in a group anymore, even for a peaceful march or a peaceful protest. It's just not tolerated at all. So between that kind of you know real life physical repression and then the online self-censorship, you know, those those are really powerful things in and shaping how what people do and what they think and how they how they interact with each other, which yeah, I've I found quite quite difficult to adjust to, and I'm sure a lot of people do.
0: Yeah, I mean it it just is so evident that we're living in a time where certain politicians like Erdogan are kind of, um, the repercussions are like few and far between, I guess. And one of my examples I'm going to bring forward, and I know you've reported on, is the Erdogan's like violation of international rules and like UN resolutions to reopen the Kapalim Lemarash in North Cyprus. Um, would you mind like really briefly explaining the situation and tell us what you think about this reopening?
1: Well, I think you're probably better qualified for that than me
0: <laughs> more opinionated anyway, well, you know that's not necessarily a
1: bad thing that's what podcast discussions are for, I guess yeah, Cyprus what a strange, strange place cyprus is it was uh It was my first trip uh when I went in. Uh, November last year, I think it was, yes, right before they reopened Marash, Varosha. Marash in Turkish and Varosha in Greek is, um, it used to be this beautiful seaside resort town in the 1970s, where all of the world's glitterati used to hang out. And it was really, you know, it was, um, it was like present day, I don't know, Monaco or something. And then when the fighting over the island broke out in, in 1974, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> when the fighting when the fighting broke out in 1974 between basically um the Turkish residents of the island and the Greek residents of the island this area became a militarized no-go zone and Turkish military actually came in and basically bombed a lot of it and it's it's now this really eerie ghost town just you know this this faded glamour crumbling resort on on this beautiful patch of the of the ocean and it's been off limits for decades because uh, a lot of families who fled the bombing obviously they still have the property rights there and they want to take you know if they want they want to either be able to re- go back to their properties and rebuild the area or they want compensation for for the loss of their of their houses and stuff which is you know it's really really complex sorting out every single family in this in this quite large place so yeah there were there were elections uh on the turkish side of cyprus uh, last autumn, and there was kind of the shock result where the pro-mainland, pro-Turkey candidate uh, actually ended up winning. So now everybody's quite worried. I mean, Dilo you, know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think everybody seems a bit worried that the idea of an actual resolution for the two sides of the island and actually making Cyprus whole again seems to be now, you know, further away than ever. And that was kind of really symbolic in Barosha or Malash when um, when the the new president said that they were going to reopen it, and uh, Erdogan and uh, his coalition partner both went to visit shortly afterwards and had a walk around, and you know really was sending this really strong message that this this is you know Turkish land, Tur- a Turkish project, and it's it's it kind of fits in with this um, quite belligerent or aggressive foreign policy that Turkey has been going for in the last 10 years or so. Erdogan when he was elected, you know, his political party was part of this very broad coalition and it was actually really liberal. It was pro Kurdish rights, it was pro LGBT rights and it's only, you know, over time that it's changed and become much more conservative in nature and going, you know, not just domestically at home that's also been reflected in Turkey's relationships with its neighbors. So before the Arab Spring 10 years ago, Erdogan was his you know, he said his policy was, you know, I'm friends with all my neighbours, no problems with all my neighbours, and now he's basically got ongoing fights going on in Iraq, in Syria, with Greece, with Israel, um, with Cyprus. Sorry, with well, with the with the Greeks and with the Greek Greek Cypriot side of Cyprus. He's also involved in Libya. Yeah, Turkey. You know, Russia is, I think, a really symbolic. Uh, way of looking at how Turkey kind of sees itself on the international stage these days, and and how it sees its place in the world. You know, it doesn't really signal compromise or a willingness to to look for peace. If you're going to unilaterally take this area that's very special to a lot of people and holds a lot of painful memories, and kind of say, well, we're going to do what we want with it, and if we're going to reopen it and rebuild it, well, that's that's what we're going to do, no matter what anybody else says.
0: Yeah, it, it actually just does make me quite sad because. His just completely politicized move is actually sacrificing years of resolution between the Turkish and Greek sides. And I mean, Turkish Cyprus being kind of a liberal place as well. It's like bringing these backward policies that he from mainland Turkey to North Cyprus itself. It's it's sad. And I just think he's acting like a puppeteer to one of his closest neighbors, like you said. I don't know. It, it makes me sad as a Cypriot as well. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, the 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 Turkish Cypriot community, um yeah, i would never been there before, and I was really, you know, it is very liberal. You know, people there didn't really, you know, they saw themselves generally as very separate to to mainland Turkey and to mainland Turkey's problems and politics. And yeah, there's there's a big argument like you say that in the last 10-20 years there's there's been this push to kind of bring Turkish Cyprus, you know, closer to to Ankara and to kind of tie those two things together when actually what they want and what their people want are are really, you know, very, very different. Um, And there's a lot of settlers from mainland Turkey who are kind of swaying the politics of of Turkish Cyprus, right? They sort of, they vote more conservative, which is kind of changing the political character of the island. It's not a a good direction. um, I think if you're somebody who's know from the island itself and and you see it kind of changing around
0: you I'm I'm not looking forward to any changes that are going to be happening anyway and I mean the only hope I have is at least like uh the large mass of students that might migrate into Cyprus will hopefully keep the island young I guess and keep the island a bit more liberal because they come from everywhere like the continent of Africa Middle East I don't know I'm, I'm hopeful but I mean it would share the same belief that north cyprus and cyprus itself is a very complex and very fascinating place it is it's just
1: it's a really beautiful and really complex part of the world and and have you thought about um doing any reporting from turkey or from cyprus
0: yes of course i live in the uk now but every summer i would go back to cyprus apart from this nice yeah i do have plans for upcoming trips as well but it, I, I would love to. I find it very fascinating to write about and research about and hear yeah, about. Yeah, I
1: think it could benefit with a few more voices coming out of it into, into international media. So yeah, that would be really cool. Um, yeah, I think we've been
2: talking about some really complex and interesting issues. So I thought to end the discussion, we'll go with a bit of a lighter question. And that is, um, what is the most interesting story that you've had to report on? This Could be something that was maybe dangerous or heartwarming or just...
1: Ooh, most interesting! Wow, I think the one that's continuing continuously really interesting is probably what happens to the women and children of Islamic states who are foreigners. They're not Syrian or Iraqi, and how they uh, what what happens to them? You know, do they do they stay in these detention camps in Syria or prisons in in Syria, or do they get repatriated home for trial or investigation or rehabilitation? Yeah, I mean those camps are really miserable places. I've gotta say they are they are horrible. Um and and these women are very they're very complex people, right? You know, I used to think anybody, any you know, Western Westerner who ran off to join ISIS, I used to think they must all be idiots because who does that? You know, how do you look at That project and um, you know enslaving Yazidi girls and chopping off people's heads in propaganda videos. How do you look at that and go, yeah, that's uh, something I want to sign up for on this really dangerous journey? You know, let's go for that. But yeah, the more of them that I've met, um, you know, men and women, the more I realise, you know, actually everybody's motivations and reasons for going are are, are really different. You can't really generalise about this this really large group of people. You know, talking about. There's at least 12,000 women, foreign women, still in these camps at the moment. You know, I once met a French girl, woman, sorry, she was early 20s, a French woman whom she she was a medical student in Paris. And her husband, she said her husband was an accountant. And I just thought, well, how bad must your life have been in Paris? You know, how much racism and, and stuff must you have faced for you to think this is a better idea than the life I'm currently living. So um, I find all of that uh, super fascinating, and it's and it's it's never happened before, right? You've basically got like Guantanamo Bay in the Kurdish hell part of Syria, but it's not for men it's for women and children you know like little children who've done absolutely nothing wrong and their governments are refusing to take them back
2: on radicaliser on radicaliser nos
1: enfants on essaie de leur donner une éducation comme n'importe qui ils connaissent pas bon bah le monde extérieur par exemple la télé l'électricité so one extremely heartwarming Story, probably the most heart, the most heartwarming story. I don't get to do a lot of heartwarming stories, to be honest. But one heartwarming story I got to do. I was working with a human rights lawyer and a journalist in Trinidad. Basically, there were two little boys from Trinidad in one of these camps, and they had a picture of their mum uh, that they carried around with them everywhere. And their dad was missing. He 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 took them to to Syria when they were about. 10 and 7 and now they are 15 and 12 I think so yeah these two little boys were basically you know on their own in one of these camps um and they had this picture of their mum and we managed and they they couldn't remember her name because they were so traumatized but the journalist in Trinidad you know he went around the Muslim communities in um, Porto Spain the capital and he found the mum so we managed to you know we ended up getting the two little boys out of the camps their mum came all the way to Syria. She'd never even been on a plane before. But this woman came all the way from Trinidad to Syria to go get her little boys back and take them back over the border to Iraq. And now they are, and then from Iraq, they flew home to, to Trinidad. And now they are, you know, happy. Well, I mean, they have social workers um, and there's still some legal issues with, with the family because the state is still kind of very wary about how they're doing and stuff. But for the most part, you know, these kids are, they're home again. And they're doing all the things and they that they that they miss doing when they were in Syria, and they get to you know they have a little sister that they hadn't seen in five years. So that family has kind of been you know made whole again. That kind of proved to me that you know that could be possible for all these children. you know it's possible to do that. Um, and yeah, it's basically one one happy ending, um which doesn't happen very often. so yeah, I like that a lot.
2: It's been an incredible
1: conversation, and I've personally learned so
2: much. And I'm sure our listeners will have too.
3: So please do check out my incredible reporting, and we will see you again in April. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality